If you would open up your Bibles to Psalm 19. And I find that I've got a little egg on my face. I've got a little crow to eat. Pick your favorite expression. Because the bottom line is I have failed again. I won't be wrapping up Psalm 19 this week. I'm almost positive that I will next week, but at this point, it would be foolish. Right, y'all, I tried, honest I did, to get it all wrapped up and to get it all crammed in. But I realized midweek that, Lord willing, I'll come back to Psalm 19 in several years and do a whole series on just the one psalm. Now, I'm not sure why I was surprised that a psalm extolling the wealth of the riches of God's Word would be so rich and would have so much here for us. But it is, and it does. And so I'm just going to tackle half of what I originally planned. For those just tuning in, we're at the end of Summer's series on finding God in the middle specifically of, of the Psalms, and this is now week three in Psalm 19, of finding God in the middle of both his world and his word. First half of the Psalm was about creation, about the message that creation proclaims, about how we can learn of our God as powerful and majestic creator, but only in kind of a general way. We need much more specifics, many more specifics that come from God's spoken word. It's in his spoken word that we learn of our God as redeemer, that we learn of him as a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God and Father. We looked last week at this rich, rich description of God's spoken word, what it's like, what benefits it has. And this week we're going to look primarily at verses 10 and 11 at first the supernatural change, the supernatural effect that finding God in the middle of his word has on us, and also at a couple of wonderful things that God's word gives to us. So I'd like to ask you to stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's word. Again, all 14 verses to help give you the context of where we find ourselves this morning. Psalm 19, to the choir master, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. And like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. And there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. 
Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. May the Lord be pleased to use and to bless the reading and the preaching of his inspired, inerrant, infallible, an authoritative word. We've already prayed, so I'll ask you to be seated. Let's dig into verse 10. After the rich, rich description of God's word in verses 7 through 9, the the psalmist here shows us the impact that God's word had on him, what effect it should have on us. If you look back at some of those nouns used in 7 through 9, as synonyms for God's word, law, precepts, commandment, fear, rules, you might think that the effect would be one of despair, of being beat down, of being crushed under their weight. But that's not at all what the psalmist says here. Look at verse 10. More to be desired are they than gold, sweeter also than honey. He speaks of his great desire for God's word. Not on par with, not equal to a desire for gold, but greater than. And not just any gold, the best gold, the finest gold. See, God's word has value to the psalmist. He esteems it. And that word there, desire, it's not just, well, I'd kind of like that if I could have some of it. That would be nice. No, that word there, desire, is actually the same word used in one of the Ten Commandments. They're obviously something negatively that we're not supposed to do. And here positively, Exodus 20, 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife and so on. The psalmist is coveting God's word. So think about that commandment. Think about the prohibition of coveting, right? Is it wrong to look at your neighbor's house or truck or boat or man cave or she shed and say, I'd like one of those. I'd like to have something like that. Is that that wrong? Not necessarily. What's wrong in the scenario is an inordinate desire. A desire out of control. A desire that says, I've got to have that or life doesn't have any meaning. I've got to have that in order to be fulfilled. That is the kind of desire the psalmist is talking about for God's word. I've got to have that. I must get it. What do I have to do to get that? 
And so the first of many questions for you this morning, is that your desire for God's word? The psalmist considers the value of God's word. Again, not the same as the purest of golds, but more than, right? What on earth has more value in our minds than, than, than gold? But God's word is more valuable than that to him. Is that how valuable God's word is to you? All right, so part of the effect that God's word has on the psalmist and should have on us is to give a great desire akin to coveting for God's word because we see its unparalleled value. Now, the other thing God's word does for us is it affects our sense of pleasure and delight, right? It is sweet. It's sweeter than honey, dripping straight off the comb. So see, this goes deeper than the intellect, right? See, I can look at something, I can make an intellectual assessment about it and say, yep, that has value, and therefore I would probably want the thing that has value because I know that it's valuable. It would be worth having. But to say that God's word is sweet is tied to delight. It's tied to pleasure. God's word brings pleasure to our hearts the same way that honey brings pleasure to our tongues and our taste buds. Does God's word bring you pleasure like that? A couple of the commentators that I read on Psalm 19 both mentioned an illustration, which I really hope is true because it's awesome, right? You never know with illustrations that you read about in other places. You know, just because somebody, just because two friends shared it on Facebook doesn't mean that it's instantly true. But the account is of a, new, of, of a man who was a new Christian who was badly injured in an explosion. He lost both of his hands. His face was badly disfigured, including being robbed of his eyesight. So no hands, no eyesight. This young Christian just developing a hunger for God's word was devastating. No way to take God's word in. But he heard of a woman who had learned to read Braille with her lips. She'd hold the braille up, rub her lips across it to be able to read. He said, there's hope. And so he ordered some of the books of the Bible in braille and got them in only to discover that in that facial disfigurement, the nerve endings in his lips were rendered useless. He couldn't discern the bumps on the page. And so he was brokenhearted. At some point later, he comes back in vain to try again. But this time, his tongue brushes across the bumps. And he realizes he can feel them. And he teaches himself to read Braille with the tip of his tongue. And whenever this illustration was first recorded and penned, he'd read through the entirety of the Bible four times. Would your hunger for and your delight in God's word 
lead you to do something like that. Now, if you have a hunger for God's word this morning, in whatever fledgling form it is, right? however great or small, if you have a hunger for God's word, if you find it valuable to any extent, if you find it sweet, know that any hunger, any desire, any delight whatsoever in God's word is the evidence of God's Holy Spirit doing his supernatural work in your heart. Because by nature, left to ourselves and our own devices and our own desires, we don't hunger for God's word. We don't value it. We don't delight in it. In fact, we hate God's word. We view it as oppressive and burdensome. We think we know better. But finding God in the middle of his word, when the Holy Spirit takes that word, his law, his Torah from last week we talked about, his covenant, and places it in our hearts, and gives us new hearts and places his spirit inside of us, we are changed. And what we love and what we crave and delight in is changed. It is a wonderful act of God's grace. That's the supernatural change that God's word brings. Now, what about the second half? What about what it gives us when we find God in the middle of his word? Two things it gives, a warning and it gives reward. So there in verse 11, moreover by them your servant is your servant warned, and keeping them there is great reward. Now, warning can be such a negative word, right? I'm warning you. My children have probably heard countless times, right, this week. But see, warnings don't have to be negative, Right? If you're driving along a road and you come upon a sign that says, Warning! Bridge out! That's actually quite a good thing. Right? That is saving you from disaster. From ruin. The ways of God, His law, His precepts, His commands, give us much needed warnings, give us very useful guidance. God's ways lead to blessing and to life. Our ways, right? Oh, we always think we know better. Our ways lead to curses and death, but his ways lead to blessing and to life. See, here's the thing, and it actually ties back into the first part of the psalm. If he's the creator, right? If he created us and the world that we live in, then don't you think that he knows the best way for us to live in the situation that he himself has created, the best way for us to live and to flourish and to truly have life? Right, and so we've got this word warning here. It's a good translation, but it's interesting to see that the root of that word, warning, literally means to shine. Right, that's where that word is coming from. God's word is a shining of light to us. Kind of like Psalm 119, 105. 
maybe a verse you're familiar with. Your word, a lamp to my feet, a light to my path. Right? It, it's for our good. It's so that we don't trip and stumble and fall. And again, if we see this, it's a mark of God's grace in our life. It's a mark of his supernatural working of his grace in our hearts. Because before, by nature, we see God's word and we think it is a curb to our happiness. It is a hindrance to our well-being. But when the Spirit opens our eyes and we can see clearly, we can see that God's word and his ways offer true thriving and true happiness. That God's ways really keep us from disaster and from ruin. So that's the warning that God's word gives. But it also gives reward. Right? If you keep God's word, his law, his precepts, his commandments, his rules, there is great reward. Now that's attention grabbing, is it not? I want a reward. Do you want a reward? What is this reward of which the psalmist speaks? I think there's a couple of things in view here. One that we've already mentioned, right? Simply following God's ways brings its own natural reward. When we live life the way God planned and designed and intended for us to live, it just works better that way. Right? When you follow the instructions that you've been given, you end up with the outcome that was intended. Right? And again, here we are coming down to how we view God's instruction. Right, Because if we're viewing like the natural man does, then it is a buzz kill. Right? But with a new heart and the spirit inside of us, we see oh, these things are so much for my good. This is saving me from heartache. This is protecting me from ruin. It's giving to me good and flourishing. So one sense of the reward is just this natural benefit that comes from living life God's way instead of our own. But what else is there? What else could result from the keeping of God's law and precepts and commandments? How about eternal life? How about salvation? Do you realize that we are saved by works? You heard me right. Do you realize that eternal life is earned by righteous living? You are saved by works. Your eternal life in heaven is earned by righteous living, just not yours. All right? Laugh at the humor therein, but get the point. We're saved by works and righteousness. It's just that someone else had to do it for us. 
Someone else's works had to save us. Someone else's righteous living had to secure and earn for us eternal life. Now, I'm not sure what you were thinking when I first read about reward, right? There, there's reward for keeping these things. Some of you might have been thinking, yeah, let's get busy after that. I can earn some, I'm good at this. I can do this. I will earn some rewards. And the other half of you thinking, oh no, I'm going to be at the back of the line again. Or maybe some of you were thinking about the types of rewards, right? No more sickness, right? My reward is going to be physical health and well-being. This arthritis is for the birds. This cancer, uh-uh, not touching me. Is that what you were thinking about in terms of a reward? Maybe you're thinking financial health, <laughs> right? Financial freedom. I'm not going to have to worry about these bills anymore. That'll be my reward. Maybe it'll be success in my business. I don't think those are the kinds of rewards the psalmist has in view. And we wouldn't be the ones to earn those anyway. found Calvin to be especially helpful in Psalm 19. He seems to be right on the mark here. Did I put this quote in? I hope I put this quote in. Got a bit, there we go. All right. It's on two screens. Even he who is most perfect amongst us comes far short of full and complete righteousness. And men cannot expect any reward for their works until they have perfectly and to the full satisfied the requirements of the law. Show of hands. Thus, these two doctrines completely harmonize. First, that eternal life shall be given as the reward of works to him who fulfills the law in all points. And secondly, that the law notwithstanding denounces a curse against all men, because the whole human family are destitute of the righteousness of works. He goes on to say that there's no way David has his own obedience in view here, earning this reward because of the very next verse. Right? Verse 12 comes right after verse 11. Right? There's great reward in keeping them. And the very next thing out of his mouth is, who can discern his errors? He's so overwhelmed and frustrated by his sinful existence. He can't even count the ways he's messed things up. He knows he doesn't even know of all the ways that he's blown it. We're going to look at that more next week, but suffice it to say for this morning, David is well aware of his need for grace. And that's what we need to grasp. Whatever the rewards we experience, we've got to know that at the end of the day, those things were purchased and secured for us by Christ and not by our feeble attempts. It's by our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I will grant to you 
But there's one final way that we do actually have to keep God's instruction in order to get the reward. There's some actual keeping for us to do. And some of you are saying, "Uh uh-huh, yep, I was waiting on that. Right? Because some of you get a little squirmy in your seats and you get a little uneasy with all of this talk of Jesus did it all for you. There's nothing left for you to do. Oh, wait a minute. Right? I've got a part to play in this. My obedience counts for something. Well, you're not alone in thinking that. You're not alone in wondering, well, what is my part in this? What role can I play? In my salvation. See, the folks following Jesus, those that crowded in around him, that witnessed the miracles, pressed in to ask him, What's our part in this? John 6, verse 28. They said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? We want to know. We want to contribute here. We want to do our part. What should we do? Give us a list. We'll check it off. We're ready to go. And so Jesus answers and he says, this is the work of God. And I'm sure their ears were all perked up. He's about to tell us. This is the work of God. That you believe in him whom he has sent. That's it. You mean it is no bigger than that? That's just a little bit part. I wanted a starring role. The way, verse 11, that you keep all of God's word is you take the sum total of what's been presented for you this covenant relationship that he's entered in with man, how he's made it all possible through the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And you believe, you place your trust in the one who did all of this perfectly in our place, the one who met us in our inability with his ability. This is the gospel. Your sin exchange for his righteousness, his paying the penalty, his absorbing the wrath that you and I deserve and giving to us his righteousness. And at the end of the day, you know what this does? This takes us back full circle. It takes us back full circle to our desire, to our hunger, to finding the sweet, to wanting to obey. To seeing God's word and say, yeah, that's beautiful. That makes sense. I want to do whatever I can to to do that. I want to seek to live his way. It takes us back full circle. And it is captured, I think, beautifully in a hymn that we don't sing it yet here. It's a little too difficult, but we'll get to it one day by William Cooper called Love Constraining to Obedience. It's got really kind of a bad title too, right? That sounds terrible. Love Constraining to Obedience. But y'all... Get these words. Here is hunger and desire and sweetness for God's word because of the new spirit placed inside of us. Here it is captured in, in lyric form. No strength of nature can suffice to serve the Lord aright. And what she has, she misapplies 
for want of clearer light. How long beneath the law I lay in bondage and distressed, I toiled the precept to obey, but toiled without success. Then to abstain from outward sin was more than I could do. Now if I feel its power within, I feel I hate it too. Then all my servile works were done, a righteousness to raise. Now freely chosen in the Son, I freely choose his ways. And then here's the refrain that comes after the end of each of those verses. To see the law by Christ fulfilled. To hear his pardoning voice changes a slave into a child and duty into choice. Let's pray. Father, indeed, would you take your word and through the Spirit's power would you cause it to come alive inside of us? Would you cause it to make sense to us now in the way that you intended, that it's for our good, that it's for our flourishing? Would you cause us to see how Christ has perfectly fulfilled every aspect of your word? How he has perfectly fulfilled all righteousness for us and that our role in that is to fling ourselves upon him as our only hope not as an additional hope to our hard work but as our only hope oh lord by your spirit's power would you let that come through with great clarity this morning and great power and conviction that only comes from the holy spirit that we might see and embrace Jesus as he's freely offered in the gospel. We ask in his name and for his sake. Amen. Please stand and